Open with me to Luke chapter 6 tonight, if you will. As we begin our second lesson to this three-part mini-series on how to judge and how to judge righteously in a godly manner, we'll read Luke chapter 6, verses 41 and 42. These are Jesus' words here in Luke six forty-one. And there he says, and why, <clears throat> and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. And let's pause and bow our heads together once again. Heavenly Father, we praise you, Lord, tonight for your acceptance of your people. Father, the prayers that we have, the needs that we bring, the requests that we have always. Father, those things that are concerning us, Lord, you take them into consideration, Lord, and you draw us to you in those things as you deal with those things. Father, help us to be concerned with what your word tells us. Help us to be concerned by what you want from us, Father, and where we might come short in those things. Father, help us to be concerned but hopeful, knowing that you will satisfy, Lord. You will finish that work as our brother just prayed. You will finish that work as we hand our lives over to you in each and every portion of it, Father. Bless us tonight as we consider your word. Help us to find joy in this fellowship together and be honored and praised, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week, again, we began this little series here on how to judge as God would have us to, essentially. Uh, we opened up by considering that 15th verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where he tells us, but he who is spiritual judges all things. And we considered, I broke it into three different parts, and last week was our first part of those three components that, that I've broken it up into, just to help me as a certain mnemonic device, I guess you could say, and just to kind of organize this little mini-series. And those three parts were assessing, confessing, and blessing. And last week, we considered the need for ourselves to assess things. It's a need for us to examine things. And when I say things, I mean all kinds of things. We examine people. We mentioned that. But that's not just isolated to people. We're not just a bunch of just judges walking around in judgmentalism and walking around in criticism and walking around in, with our... Noses up in the air is so often we're accused of being as God's people and Christians in general. We're given and we're called to examine things for ourselves. Examine people, but examine relationships, examine situations, examine circumstances, examine feelings, examine everything that we are. Well, what does it say? He who is spiritual judges all things. We consider these things. And we're called to examine things for what they are in the eyes of the Lord and in the opinion, whose, only, whose opinion is the only one that counts and matters is the Lord. We assess things for what they are in His view. And we need to assess what his desire is for our involvement with those things. Again, whether it's with people, whether it's relationships, the things that we do, our jobs, all of these decisions we're always making. But just again, those feelings that we have about the different encounters we have in this walk uh, that we call life. Now, people can be kind of hesitant to do that, given that we do have a reputation of, well, of snootiness and hypocrisy and the like people might be hesitant to make that effort to assess things 
and to judge as the Lord would have us to. To look at something and say, this is something I should be engaged in. This is something I should not have anything to do with. This is something that's going to take some time and some going to the Lord before I make a decision, whatever the case might be. It takes effort to do that. It takes effort and a conscientious decision to assess something and evaluate something. But that's what God calls us to do. We need to take time to understand the Word. We need to take time to understand God's view in things. We need to take time to understand what the Holy Spirit is. We need to take time, whatever time is necessary, to seek the infilling of the Holy Spirit so that we can understand what He has for us, so that we can have the mind of Christ, well, delivered to us and active in us in the manner that He wants it to be, so we can understand how different things should apply to us specifically. Uh, it doesn't matter if we feel hypocritical, if we're not being hypocritical. Let me say it that way. Uh, It doesn't matter if we don't want to appear hypocritical. Let me just put it this way. We must not ignore God's will for us because we fear appearing hypocritical. What we must do is instead to learn to avoid hypocrisy by simply following God's direction in how to assess. That's what it comes down to. Do what the Lord tells you and what... People think of that, what people interpret you as being, if you're following the Lord's direction and His leading and doing it with His love and His grace demonstrated, it doesn't matter what the thoughts of others are. So how do we do that? Well, moving on to the second element, we must assess ourselves first. And that second component, I've listed it here as confess. Now, obviously, these are rhyming words to help me to remember those things. To assess, to confess, and to bless. What does this confess component mean? Well, you know what confessing means. It means to tell or to admit something, perhaps something wrong or damaging even to oneself, something you might not want to admit. It doesn't necessarily have to be something egregious. It doesn't necessarily have to be something damaging, but oftentimes it is. Uh, Crime gets committed. A guy is standing there covered in... Well, evidence, evidence that a crime has been committed. And so they take him into the, to the police station. They sit him down and say, what happened? And he confesses and tells you, I did this, 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 and this. Um, and I'm guilty. This is the situation. He makes known. He admits. I did it. I confess. We all understand what it is. All the way back in Numbers chapter 5, we see that, well, there's an understanding uh, well, what confession is and, and where it's involved for God's people. In Numbers chapter 5, we see it listed there, well, as part of the, it's involved in, um, well, God's people coming and it's part of their worship. It's part of their sacrifices, part of the offerings that are brought there. We can read in Numbers chapter 5 and verse 5. There in the law of Moses, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, when a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord. And that person is guilty. No getting around it. It is what it is. I committed this sin. Then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. This isn't the only place where it speaks of God's people confessing their sin, making known their sin, admitting their sin. If you look in the Hebrew, that word confess, it's a word elsewhere translated to know. It's yada, which I think is interesting because it's like yada, yada, yada. So I remember that one. To know, yada, yada, yada. I know this. I understand this. To make known, to confess that. 
Now, sometimes confessing does involve great shame. Confess the sin which he has committed. There should be some shame involved there. God says, don't do this. I've done this. In order to have reconciliation, in order to have peace, in order to have forgiveness, in order to have an understanding between myself and the Lord that I no longer want to be attached to this. I want to be brought back into fellowship, good fellowship with him. I need to make that known to him. In Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, oftentimes it can involve guilt, it can involve shame. In Nehemiah chapter 9, this was where Nehemiah and the priest Ezra, they were trying to restore godly worship to the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem specifically, as they were sent back and they were trying to put things back together. Uh, the wall, we understand, and just trying to get worship and, and all of those things back to where they're supposed to be, where they were intended to be. And they didn't hold back many punches. They, they spoke the word, read the word. Well, there were some pretty, well, some pretty toe-stomping messages that were given back then uh, between Nehemiah and Ezra to these people. Uh, here in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 1, we see, it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. There was undealt sin with that there was undealt with sin that needed to be identified, needed to be stated, needed to be presented. In this case and in this setting, there were a number of them there, and they kind of came corporately. And confessed before the Lord so that that healing could take place. So that blessing could take place that the Lord was, well, appointing Ezra and Nehemiah and others to bring on a national level to those people. That's what the Lord was intending. And for a time, there was that receptiveness on the people's part. Uh, We understand this. And so they came together and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They owned it. They took ownership Again, to a measure and for a time, they took ownership of that and they confessed it. Now, uh, we don't necessarily come here together as, well, as a, an assembly and just sit and just dump out and bleh, all of our confessions. It's not what we do. Now, oftentimes, there's just a generalized understanding. We're made up of flesh. And sometimes there are times when... Well, that we do share such things. We understand that. There's a moment in time for that. But individually, we confess things to the Lord, don't we? And if we don't, we should. That's understood. It's a daily, personal thing to bring to the Lord. Moment by moment, as we assess ourselves and assess those things that we encounter, we oftentimes are presented, especially when we're in the Word, right? The Word being a mirror to us, holding that mirror up to us. We recognize there's still work to do here. And Lord, I understand this and I recognize this. And we confess that to Him. We confess our position on things. We confess our feelings on things. We confess our weakness in things. We confess our sin, certainly. We understand this. But we come to the Lord when we encounter something. Maybe we don't know what something is and how it applies to us just yet. Uh, Maybe we recognize we should. Lord, I, I know that I should understand have a uh, already have a basis and a foundation of how to tackle this but i don't can you confess that to the lord absolutely lord I, this is my shortcoming and i recognize this and it shouldn't be my shortcoming but it is what it is just now 
I understand this. Uh, Lord, this is a relationship that I have, bringing it back to people. I understand this morning, this relationship, the first thing in the morning, this relationship is not something that, that should be part of my life, and yet I'm having a difficult time cutting it loose. You can confess that. I mean, it, any number of different things, any number of different circumstances. We confess our position when encounters come our way. We must recognize and we must admit, even if only to ourselves and the Lord and not anybody else, we must recognize our own experience, our own involvement, our own state of struggle, perhaps, as encounters come. And we're called to judge. This is something that's in my life. I know that it's wrong and I know that I want it anyway. Let's put it that simple. Lord, I recognize that's wrong of me. You confess it to him and you bring it to him. Now, sometimes it's quite an ugly thing that we are confessing. When we are judging things, when we are looking at things and assessing things, uh, the part where we start getting into trouble, since we are oftentimes accused of this, I figured we might as well tackle it just a little bit. That basest element that we're looking to avoid is that hypocrisy that we are so often accused of being. Uh, hypocrites. Yeah, everyone's familiar with it. All kinds of quotes out there about hypocrisy. I wrote a couple down. Hypocrisy is the art of practicing vice while preaching virtue. That makes good sense, right? Practicing what is wrong while preaching what is right. Understanding that, you know, having one leg on either side of the fence. It's always the ones with the dirty hands pointing all the fingers. I've heard that one uh, in regards to the church setting and that sort of thing. I've heard that a number of different times. Saints, we understand from the outset, if we want to avoid hypocrisy, we need to understand our place. We in and of ourselves, and me that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. I'm not qualified to condemn anyone else for their sin, for their error. I'm not qualified to condemn someone, particularly if I'm occupied and tied up in the same thing. We understand this. Hypocrisy is, that is hypocrisy of the highest order. This is foul, this is wrong, this is something you shouldn't be tied up in when I am absolutely tied up in the same thing. Uh, It's the context of those words that, that Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 6 and verse 37. That hypocrisy is what Jesus was speaking of here. So often people point and say, this is all about judgment and how we're supposed to live and let live and show love and all of these things. We are called to show love. There's no question. But the context of Jesus' words were in the context of hypocrisy and avoiding the hypocrisy that, again, we're so often accused of. Luke chapter 6 and verse 37. He says, judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For the same measure that you use, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? Hypocrites. <laughs> Hypocrites are those ones who would try to lead when they're not qualified to do so? Who would try to direct when they're not qualified to do so? Now you understand. Someone living in complete sin and and guilty of the things that they preach, the Lord can take the words of the hypocrite and He can actually use those words in a powerful way to the hearer. Can bless that hearer by speaking truth. You know, Paul said even in pretense, when the Lord's name is preached and it's preached in truth, it can come even from the foulest. The vilest of people. 
and still be a blessing. He's able to do remarkable things in the most difficult and the oddest of circumstances the Lord is. I know stories from some of your testimonies where you're like, in the midst of this goofiness, here came the pure bread of life, the word that came. And it touched hearts, and, and the Lord can do such things. But that being said, for the hypocrite themselves, well, there's going to be correction at the very least, right? What was Jesus' position on the hypocrite? The one who speaks such things and acts in such a way that isn't commensurate with the, what they're preaching and teaching. Look at Matthew chapter 23 and verse 27, where he starts kind of breaking bad on these on these hypocrites. He didn't hold any punches back. Matthew 23 and verse 27, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And then he says what he thinks of those scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside... You are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's the same thing that Paul spoke. Paul taught in Romans chapter 2 when he says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, in Romans 2 and verse 1. Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. It's the definition of hypocrisy. The definition. Now listen, before I go on, you understand that any time someone preaches the word of God, You understand it's called the foolishness of the message preached because, or the foolishness of preaching, if you look at the King James Version, it's not that the word being preached is foolish, it's the fact that someone like myself or anyone else who brings the word, an earthen vessel, is preaching at all. Preaching something rather remarkable. I speak quite often about the perfect works coming from imperfect vessels. That's a remarkable miracle from the Lord. You understand that there's a measure of hypocrisy that's presented just in the fact that someone can preach as they do. But it's the Lord working in that. And it's, well, it's with the hope and the intent that the Lord finishes that work. You understand who I am. I understand who you are. And I understand, we all understand that we're on our respective walks of faith. Varying levels of completion. Uh, But these ones condemn themselves. For you who judge, practice the same things, are engaged in the same things interested and elbows deep in the same things that they condemn. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? God frowns on hypocrisy. Let's just put it in a nutshell. God frowns on it. He recognizes it. He will judge those ones, correct those ones, chastise those ones at the very least who are guilty of it. We understand this. Uh, Jeremiah 12, too, talks about God's people who act like those ones in Romans chapter 2, where he says, you've planted them. Yes, they've taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. They're speaking all the right things, perhaps looking like the right things, but their minds and their hearts of interest are looking at something else, talking a good game, if you will, but not playing one. Or playing a game, I guess you could say. Talking a good game, but not acting it out. Not living it out correctly. Saints, it must not be so. Alright? It's, it's that simple. It must not be so that God's people uh, speak and preach all of the things that are presented in the Word and all of the right things and knowingly choose to live a hypocritical life um, engaging in those very things that 
all that we preach against. I'll give you a quick example in David. For time's sake, I won't spend as much time as perhaps I thought I would. But David is an example in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You understand that, well, David was that man of God, a hero of faith. We understand that he was certainly sinful in what he did with Bathsheba, took a man's wife and then had that man put to death to hide his own sin. Um, He was then confronted by that prophet Nathan, who was sent to deal with that matter. And when he did, he told him that story about the rich man and the poor man, the rich man having all the flocks that the rich man could possibly want, the poor man having but one little lamb that he loved as his own child, and the rich man took that lamb in spite of all the flocks that he had. And he slew that lamb and served it up to a guest that he had. Uh, David, ironically enough, judged and condemned that man in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 5. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And he was proven a hypocrite in that very act of sin, and condemning this one who did exactly what he did, only with sheep, you could say, rather than a person. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. There in the first part of verse 7. If you step down to verse 9, Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? He goes on to say, To do evil in his sight. You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. The saints, David wasn't in a position to judge rightly when he had this undealt with sin. He, was in, he could speak all the right words. He could do all of the right things. He could... Well, the Lord could bless through the words and the actions that he took as a king. He could well, help those ones who might hear the right things coming from David's mouth. But David was costing himself as he was outside of fellowship with the Lord. David was hurting himself as he was trying to hide from himself as well as everybody else. The wrongdoing that he had partaken of. He wasn't assessing himself in the situation. Else he would have sat and said, well, this... Uh, Sounds ironically familiar here, this whole sheep thing. And maybe that's what he was exactly doing inside of his mind and didn't say it. And that's why he brought it so hard down on this one. Um, He hadn't dealt with these things before the Lord, we understand. And it seems he had not confessed them either. Now listen, Uh, had the hypothetical poor man with the sheep been real, judgment would have been cast against the rich man. Restitution would have been paid to that poor man for losing his sheep. Good could have come from it because God's hand in it, but not for David in that circumstance because he was in sin. Saints, if you want to be most useful to the Lord, if we want to be the most blessing to those around us and to ourselves, we're going to talk about that next week, we must assess the issues that we encounter and confess our situation in them. We can't wait till the prophet Nathan tells us, you're the one. Uh, well, I suppose we can, but there's loss that suffered then. When the prophet Nathan tells us something, or the Word tells us something, or the Spirit tells us something, and helps us to understand, I'm wayward just now, or I'm not quite thinking this just so. That right then is the time to say, Lord, I'm not thinking just, oh, I'm not thinking as I should. I don't know exactly how to think, perhaps, or maybe I know exactly how I should think, but I can't get there. I bring it before you. 
I confess this to you. And the Lord can work with that. The Lord can help you to understand uh, what he has for you. And you can ultimately be a blessing. Again, I'll talk about that next week. David ultimately understood this. Psalm 51 quickly in verse 12. After he had spoken with Nathan, after he'd had his sin brought to him rather abruptly, he said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. I need to address this for myself before I can be the blessing that I'm intended to be. Um, I'm going to skip First uh, John 1 and verse 8, but understand that we need to keep ourselves before the Lord. Uh, if we're going to be the blessing that we're intended to be. Again, more on that next week. Now, there are other scenarios where we can find ourselves in trouble or in a dangerous situation that isn't just outright egregious hypocrisy. When we're judging things before the Lord and assessing things before the Lord, not always are problems coming from just egregious, outright, uh, I know what right is and I know what wrong is, I'm going to hold this back and sit and point my dirty fingers at someone else. Uh, we can be well-intentioned but still find ourselves in trouble as we're assessing things and judging things. I'll take you to Galatians chapter 6. As we're, well, we need to be self-aware as we're assessing things and we need to be prepared to confess before the Lord and admit our situation and our thoughts, certainly. But what kind of circumstances might we be dealing with Um, you might run into an encounter or a circumstance that you have some history with, some experience with. You might run into a person who's having a struggle or having some trouble. You might encounter a thing at work where you're like, this caused me problems before. This was an issue for me sometime past. It might be a long time past. It might be very, very recent past. But you come across something, again, a relationship or just a set of circumstances, a scenario, if you will. And there might be a great need that's present right there that you're like, I know how to deal with this. The Lord dealt with me in this situation. I know exactly how to. And they have a problem. Let me go after this speck or a beam. It might be a beam in their eye. Let me go after this. Uh, Those times can be dangerous to those ones that have a history with that. Uh, a long time ago, I think it was written in 2004, sometime around that, I read a story in the New York Times after 9-11 took place. After 9-11 took place, 343 firefighters died, left behind a number of widows. The majority of those ones were married, I believe. Left behind a bunch of widows. And so there was this rather remarkable and startling fact, this statistic came up, that a number of those, well, a number of the firefighters that were left behind went to care for the widows that uh, were left behind by the loss of their firefighters. And what happened was over the course of the next year or so, many of those well, firefighters who lived, their marriages tanked, crashed, as they went with those widows that they were caring for. Uh, they were well-intentioned, most of them, right? I mean, you would like to think so. I mean, the flesh is what the flesh is. But you can understand that. Buddy goes down, leaves behind a family, you go to help out, that sort of thing. One thing leads to another and emotions get involved and so on and so forth. (laughs) Well-intentioned, but it was a dangerous situation. And at some point, they didn't admit to themselves, I have to confess, 
I feel differently about her and my wife. It's things are starting to swap here. And these ones, well, they made some bad choices, bad decisions. And marriages and relationships were wrecked. And marriages and relationships were started that were based on, well, based on bad circumstances, I guess you could say. It's similar to that concept we see in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, where it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. There can be issues. Someone has been in a trespass. Someone has been in sin. Someone has had their life shaken up by a bad circumstance. And you might look and say, I can help this one. Yeah, you know what? I, I have dealt with this myself. Or maybe I haven't, but I have the answer for them. And, and I can be a help and I can be a comfort to this one. And it's good to be sensitive to people. It's good to be tender to the, those of the household of faith, certainly. But he doesn't just leave it at that. He doesn't just say, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. It's all going to be just fine because Jesus covers all and everything's going to be great. Well, Jesus does cover all. And as we listen to the Lord, things will be great. But we do remember that we are made up of flesh. And Paul goes on, considering yourself, looking at yourself, assessing yourself, lest you also be tempted. Well, saints, it's not a, an accusation. You know, it's just a recognition of potential. You don't put yourself in a situation where there is the potential of catastrophe. We need to identify the potential for danger. We need to... Well, we might be well-intentioned, but sometimes things can be ill-advised. And you just take that into consideration. Now, the Lord can work, and the Lord can lead, and the Lord can direct, and the Lord can guard, and He can guide, and He can help you in some really seemingly helpless circumstances. But when He gives us the liberty to be pragmatic saints and practical and right and careful, we should be so. We should be careful. We should be practical. We should do all of those things. When we look at something, you can be well-intentioned. And you look at the circumstances and the scenario and say, maybe this could be approached in a different manner, a different, less personally involved manner, a less me hands-on manner, whatever the case might be. Well, we go to the Lord. That's what we do. We confess it before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a man and I'm weak. I'm made of flesh. I'm a woman. And I don't have all of the answers, and I think I have the answer for that, but I recognize that there could be some issues here. What do you want me to do? That's forthcoming when you talk to the Lord that way. It's forthcoming. It's identifying that you recognize that you are weak and He is strong, and He can give you the strength that He needs to do whatever you need to do. Or He can tell you, don't take a step in that direction. And we need to heed Him either way. Again, intentions can come from an entirely pure place. And I believe that some of those firefighters had pure intentions. But we're made up of flesh and purity can become impure very quickly without any intention on our part at all. We might not be equipped to deal with that issue. We might not be called to deal with that issue. The Lord doesn't promise to equip us for things that He hasn't called us to. We understand that the Word of God has been given to us for, under, for us to understand and have a wisdom and a basis and a foundation of dealing with life, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. But if the Lord says, that's not my work for you, it's not a good work for you. And he doesn't promise to equip you for that. So we need to come to the Lord when we are assessing something, saying, I believe that this is what I need to be doing. But I might confess that, well, I'm having difficulty in that. 
Or I might confess that I don't know what to do with this. Or the Lord says, no. And you say, I must confess. I feel myself drawn towards this. We trust the Lord to strengthen. Uh, and we trust the Lord to empower. And we trust the Lord to lead us. We just need to be upfront and honest with him. We can be well-intentioned saints. Uh, but we can be well-intentioned and ill-advised to go after things that he doesn't have for us to go after. Uh, he doesn't promise to equip us for those things that aren't good works for us. Um, I do think it's interesting in John chapter 5 and verse 30 that Jesus, who has the best intentions of everybody, anybody, has the wisdom well past and surpassing anybody, has the greatest capability and the clearest calling of being the Savior and the answer to everything, even he still deferred to the Father and the Father's leading. John 5 and verse 30, he says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. Who does he hear from? He heard from his father. He deferred to his father even though he was the son of God. He allowed his father to tell him. Always he was in the will of God. Always he pleased his father. But he allowed the Lord to tell him what he wanted from him. And that's what he did. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will. Even though his was perfect. But the will of the father who sent me. Saints, do you want to judge righteously? Do you want to judge correctly? Do you want to judge in a godly manner? Then let it always be not your will, but the will of the Father. When you recognize that your will is taking you in a direction that is indeed your will and not necessarily His, confess it to Him. Admit it to Him. And allow Him to change your mind and draw you back to where you need to be. It is what it is. We're made of flesh. And sometimes our flesh, oftentimes, always, if you want to get right down to it, our flesh wants to go against the things of God. We understand this. Our will can be moved despite our good intentions. Our will can be shifted and repositioned. The people of Ephesus, Revelation 2. God said, I know your works. And they're solid. They are what they are. You are faithful and and godly, and you do all these things well, but you know what? You left your first love. You're no longer doing things because of my will. You're doing things because you like this, 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 and this. Not simply being in lockstep with me. And there was an issue that was there. Well-intentioned, but ill-advised, saints. Not what we want to do. We need to consider ourselves when we encounter anything, situations, relationships, whatever the case may be, consider ourselves lest we be tempted. Saints, I'm going to just close there tonight. I have a couple of other thoughts here that I could share, but I'm not going to for time's sake, and I don't feel led to go into that. But you understand the importance of assessing a circumstance, assessing things if we're going to judge godly we need to look at something for what it is and identify it and when we don't find ourselves in lockstep with the lord and his will for us we need to confess that before the lord we need to share that with him let him know he knows but let him know that we know let him know that we're struggling with this issue let him know that well that perhaps our will isn't entirely what his will is and then let him lead and direct you and then we will be the blessing for others and for ourselves that we are intended to be. And that's the third component 
of judging righteously that we will consider next Wednesday. But for now, we will stop there.